I've had the very good luck to work with some of the TED fellows. You'll know TED, of course. It's that conference that's become famous for its 17-minute speeches. It's the conference that's helped launch Brene Brown and Simon Sinek and Sean Anker and thousands of others. And of course, TEDx, which is the spin-off, the local versions of the big TED conference. Hey, you may have even watched my TEDx talk called How to Tame Your Advice Monster. So the TED Fellows Program is when younger people of promise are given access to the TED world. They attend the conference, they do speeches, they get mentoring, they meet powerful and influential people, they get some financial support. And for a number of years, I went to an annual gathering of these extraordinary young people to give them some support and some facilitation and some coaching. What became obvious over these three years that I did this was that there was a common theme. There was brilliance, there was achievement, and there was disintegration. They were often exhausted, and overwhelmed, and lacking in confidence, and stuck, and broke, and just wrung dry by their so-called success. They were all doing great things, and they were all struggling with the success that they brought upon themselves. What was brilliant, of course, was that a range of coaches and facilitators and subject matter experts were able to provide support and accelerate them, or most of them, to a plateau of sustainability, of financial and confidence and foci sustainability. Now, as you know, I collect questions. I love good questions. And here is the question that I really took from this. What does sustainable nourishing success look like? How do I not sacrifice my life for my ambition? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Laurel Breitman is a best-selling writer, a lover of donkeys, a commercial grower of avocados and limes and lemons, and a secular clinical chaplain in training. She's also someone who wears a cowboy hat better than most, and she's also a TED fellow, which is where I met her a decade and some ago. She was fresh from the New York Times bestseller success of her book, Animal Madness, and she was also at a crossroads trying to figure out who she was going to be and what she was trying to do with her life. Now, she's on that path. And if you want to give her a job title, it's Director of Writing and Storytelling at the Stanford School of Medicine. There, she teaches those who are in the medical field communicate more clearly and more vulnerably with their patients. Laurel was raised in Southern California on a ranch. In fact, it's the very ranch that she's talking to us from today. But when she first moved there, there were less than promising beginnings. My parents bought it in the mid-1970s. It was falling apart. Uh, but we had beautiful orange, avocado, and lemon orchards, and they wanted to rehabilitate them and turn it into a more profitable venture. Now, you'd be forgiven in assuming that rehabilitating a ranch might be a full-time job for everybody concerned. I mean, that's my assumption. But for Laurel's family, not so much. My father was a heart surgeon by day, so he was a rancher at night um, and on the weekends, and my mom really ran the, the commercial ag operation while he was at the hospital. So Laurel grew up learning that you could have a life with many irons in the fire. But 
it wasn't just the stuff being done that was influential on who she was becoming. It was understanding how and where and when best to think. I'd say for me, the most valuable thinking time I have is when I'm outside without my phone. Um, every book idea has come to me that way. Ideas for articles, even Instagram posts. Um, if I have my phone, if I'm looking at a screen, they don't usually come. It's that sort of shower moment. You know, where do you find your, where does your creative muse find you? For me, it usually finds me when my feet are muddy and I'm doing something else with my hands. That's not to say Laurel has only ever known a rural life. She didn't return full-time to the ranch until the pandemic, but she's always held this space as a place of refuge, especially when she's taking on some of the big, challenging, daunting writing projects that she's known for. You know, the spaciousness gives me time to think. Um, also, there's always something simpler than fixing a book or fixing an essay or editing someone's essay, which is you plant a seed and unless a rat or a bird eats it, it grows into something. <laughs> It's the same in publishing. It's exactly the same. <laughs> just for the same, just for the same. But yeah. you know, there's something so satisfying about that. I was just looking at my, I have a huge passion fruit vine right now. Oh, and I planted fantastic. it three years ago. Yeah. And for the first two years, it did nothing. And now right. this thing, I will send you a photo. It's it's roughly 50 feet. It's covering wow. the entire garden. It's <laughs> huge and now i have more passion fruit than i could possibly do anything with the freezers are full of it i've made way too many passion fruit margaritas oh um, that's great <laughs> is there such thing as way too many passion fruit margaritas i'm not sure that that's even possible <laughs> you know they're awfully acidic it's not even just the drugs part they kind of keep giving you too much tartness gives you indigestion um, but yeah. you know it's uh it's just a comforting miracle um yeah. and it of course it's the oldest metaphor too yeah. You know, you plant a seed, you water it, it becomes something else. So yeah. it's just, it's an act of hopefulness always, every year. Uh, I, yesterday I went on a hike and I just kept saying, spring, it's such a miracle. Spring, it's such a miracle. You know, and my husband was getting so annoyed with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've I've known you for quite a while now and, um, you know, watched your journey. And in part, part of your journey was up to Alaska um, I remember seeing photographs you were posting on maybe Instagram or somewhere just about what that landscape was like. I'm curious to know how you've been shaped by the landscapes you've been within. Oh my God. I think I've been waiting for someone to ask, ask me this question my whole life. Like, <laughs> what a good question. Uh, I, it, I can't answer because I am those landscapes, I would say, right? Like, I think... You know, you look at the Grand Canyon and you see the, the great carving of the water has made yeah. it. Like, we are all that. We are yeah. each a Grand Canyon, you know, shaped by the waters that run past us and smush us okay. and try to kill us. Yeah. And also are beautiful and carry delightful things to us. Um, you know, I, I grew up outside all the time. I grew up ranching. Um, I've spent a vast amount of time in, in busy cities, which I absolutely love. They feel like national parks to me albeit urban yeah. ones. Um, but I have been shaped by the great wildernesses of the world. I, I worked in the Amazon for many years. I, I spent many years as a fisheries conservation biologist in training before I decided I really just wanted to write. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I studied grizzly bears in Alaska in college and thereafter. And then I fell in love with and met my husband up in the Bering Sea in the Aleutian Islands. Um, and he runs a salmon cannery 
on Kodiak, which is a big island off the coast of mainland Alaska. And the cannery is in a small native village. It's off the road system. So um, we call it the Alaskan bush. That's what everyone calls it. Um, and we spend our summers there. That's so great. we only got internet a year and a half ago, something <laughs> like that. Um, and that was a delightful practice every summer. I would make a list of like the things I needed to do online. And then I would yeah. walk to the computer and check off all the things that I needed to do online. And then I would walk back to our house. That's great. Which is like a very early 1990s thing to do. But <laughs> oh my you God. You tell that to the kids today and nobody believes you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was so nice. So, you know, I'd say I've been shaped in both spiritual and intellectual ways and also with like the very practical kind of ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where I tend to feel more most comfortable um, in wilderness uh, off of pavement, um, though I do love the pavement. And if I am in the wilderness <laughs> for too long, my God, do I start dreaming about like someone else making me a coffee? <laughs> you know? I'm still I'm still hung up on the fact like in a fairy tale, you met your husband in the Illusion Islands. How great is that? Oh Something God, like I would Angela never. Angela Carter would have written about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did. I did write about it. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's not something I would ever recommend someone else looking for a partner <laughs> in the Bering Sea. You know, um, that the, all the fish there are more fish in the sea is is true. But some seas are more barren than other seas. You know. <laughs> That's funny. Um. I remember when, and I think you write about this in your new book as well, um, Looks Like Bravery, that your your ranch where you are at the moment came very close to being burnt down in one of the um, Californian bushfires, which of course as an Australian we're pretty well familiar with as well. What felt at risk with that fire approaching? Oh, God. Everything, you know. Um, the fire didn't just approach, you know, the, the fire actually took everything I loved. The fire burned the house to the ground. Um, the fire took a big chunk of our orchards. Um, and the fire left surprising things like our chicken coop full of chickens in it who were unharmed and in fact laid eggs throughout the wildfire. Um, uh, just remarkable. The fire left a pile of firewood next to where the house was. What I didn't know until we lost our house to wildfire is that yeah. it comes for your memories too. And I would uh, say that is something that, you know, now I look at wildfire smoke very, very differently, you know, and when I watch those like terrible fires and in, in Australia of the last few years and, you know, you see the terrified fleeing wildlife, you see the, what look like refugee camps of people who are displaced and waiting to see if their homes are safe to go back to, or if they've made it. Um, you know, I look at that smoke, I, I don't see particulate. I see people's recipes from their grandmothers written in their handwriting. I see their family photos. Um, you know, you lose when you lose things. Uh, yes, they are things. Right. But they yeah. are also the reminders and the receptacles for love, for memories, for experiences. Um, and it, it just losing all of that felt like a massive death. No. Is the truth. Um, and just like a death, you look around after and you're just kind of angry the world is going on as it was, you know, and and, and that it's beautiful. You know, I just, I felt so much rage, like how beautiful the wildflowers were that year nice. after we lost what we lost, you know, and also grateful. Um, and everyone, you know, 
in this, this is a very American thing. I'm not sure if this is true in other continents. Um, but people want to immediately pivot your hard thing to like the silver lining, you know? Yeah. So we would say, oh yes, we, you know, lost everything in this wildfire and people would immediately say, well, thank goodness no one died. And you're like, well, yeah. true, you know, <laughs> but like yeah. death is a death is kind of a low bar, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or excuse me, <laughs> right. death is kind of a high bar for suffering. Right. It can still be really bad even if no one was burned <laughs> alive, you know? Yeah. Uh, exactly. So, that, that um, ability to be just present to loss and present to grief is is hard, but it's such a gift if you can find that space. I really agree. And, you know, what a lot of writing this book has taught me and what my life has taught me generally is that the way we think about grief is in many ways broken um, mm. in that we talk about grief as something to get through. Yeah. or something that you survive or that you're in an acute period of grief um, on the other side of your grief. Um, you know, we use language like that, even if we're not using a specific progressive staged idea of grief, which actually Elizabeth Kubler-Ross never really intended. No, um, exactly. She's talking about people getting used to dying, not people grieving whatever yeah exactly exactly but man do we as humans love like a neat progression <laughs> um, and boxes to slot ourselves right into to the promise of organization man uh, yeah. you know but what i really feel is that there's no other side of grief there is yeah. only grief and it's a new color that you never unsee laid over the world no it's a kind of filter that that never leaves you it's a taste you never stop tasting yeah. Um, and I, and thank goodness, you know, I, I wouldn't wish crushing loss on anybody, but I really do feel that it's an amplifier of flavor and of love and of joy. And I think we need it for awe and wonder. I really do. Um, you know, it's, I spend a lot of time writing about this in the book, but there's really no such thing as happiness. You know, there's only happy, sad, um, there is only sadly happy. Um, in which I think our most delicious feelings are always covered by a colored by a tiny bit of pain, and that's yeah. okay. Um, you know, I, grief is just something that like set parachutes you, sends you into another layer of human experience. Um, so thank God for that. Also, ugh, you know, yeah. I would just want to be shallow, like <laughs> <laughs> exactly, kind of be blandly and you know in denial and just happy the whole time. Apparently not. Exactly. Um, Exactly. I want basic problems. You know, I want to be someone that's like pissed that someone stole her parking place. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to be mad at brunch lines. Like, I just <laughs> want to be basic so badly. That's funny. Um, we're going to talk more about this, Laura, but I want to hear about the book you've chosen for us. Oh, my goodness. This was such a fun. I'm, you know, I've been in school way too long, um, <laughs> as you know, and there's nothing I love more than a good homework assignment. Right. Um, so I chose when, sorry, do you see my coffee stain when, on the when top? When breath becomes air. Yeah, exactly. And I love a, I love a well-read book. People hold them up and they're like, they've got bookmarks and underlines and marginalia. It's perfect. Exactly. I feel like, don't you feel that way as a writer? Like, I want my books that live in people's houses to be dog-eared, to have crumbs in exactly. them, like chocolate stains like it's just proof someone lived with it and really like welcomed it into their passion, life passion fruit margarita stains the whole <laughs> the whole shebang yeah exactly god did i you know grow up wanting to be a Hemingway kind of writer all i wanted was to like 
be drinking whiskey and writing like the men I read about him. And I'm like, that is the last thing I want to do when I have a whiskey. I don't know how they did that. Like, well, what would have Hemingway written if like he hadn't been drunk all the time? Exactly. Like, he could have been, that man had potential. He could have been great. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But why this book? How, how did you come to choose, of all the books, because I can see all the books behind you. Actually, it's uh, yes. just a closet, right? But it's like... Yeah, uh, this is my husband's book collection that he doesn't yeah. want my grubby paws. Like, he put these in his closet because he doesn't want uh, me to wander <laughs> off with them. This is, that's funny. That's funny. <laughs> but of all the books you could have chosen, why did you pick this one? Oh, I feel like this book is in some ways a kind of benevolent parent to mine. Um, I'd actually already started writing my book, which is my own investigation of loss and grief, but also joy and the struggle to figure out who we are outside of other people's expectations for us um, when this came out. So I was already writing um, and I, my mom and I read it at the same time. So um, for any of your listeners who haven't read When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, it's the story of a neurosurgeon um, who's very young, who is diagnosed uh, with cancer, stage four, so it's already metastatic, um, and he receives a pretty dire diagnosis. He lives for a fair bit of time considering his prognosis um, and writes so beautifully about his own transition um, from physician to patient, not that he no. ever stops being a physician, um, and he's deeply philosophical. And he writes about his impending death and also reflecting on his life while he's ill. Um, Also, he and his wife, Lucy, decide to have a child named Katie um, that they have while he's ill, knowing he is going to die. And she's still a very young child when he dies. Um, So the book is, I believe, a love letter to life. Um, And I think one thing he does, which is what I wanted to do and which all of my favorite books do, they they sort of... um, say they're about one thing, but they're really about something else. And I think a lot of people thought this book was about illness or death, but the truth is no one, none of us know what death is. We cannot write books about death. Right. Uh, we can only write books about life. And so right. to me, that's what this book is about. It's about the preciousness of life. Um, and that's what I want to do in my work. And that's what my favorite work does is that just... Beautiful reminds you like hey hey can you hear the mortality <laughs> clock it's ticking get out there do the thing you're scared of um and so you know i would say his book isn't explicitly that but that's how i felt reading it um and that's my favorite kind of story is one that makes me want to just go take a big old bite out of life that how did you choose what two pages to read uh, well the truth is Love him to death, but Paul can be kind of dense and kind of intellectual. And that's fine when you're reading things out loud. Those are the parts that don't work quite as well. And I know this from experience because the first book I wrote was based on my doctoral dissertation. And I Uh went on book tour to try to find like evocative passages to read and I didn't have enough. So this book I wanted, I set a challenge for myself that um, I would be able to pick it up any page, any paragraph and be able to read out loud. So who knows if I've done it. Um... But that's what I wanted to do. Um, And I believe Paul did it uh, throughout the book, but especially on pages 198 and 199, which is the very end of his portion. Um, I love it. 
he wrote, uh, he finished with these two pages and then his wonderful wife, who's actually also a brilliant physician and an author, wrote the end of the book um, after he died. So these are his last two pages. Oh, I'm excited to hear it. So over to you reading When Breath Becomes Air. Graham Greene once said that life was lived in the first 20 years, and the remainder was just reflection. So what tense am I living in now? Have I proceeded beyond the present tense and into the past perfect? The future tense seems vacant, and on others' lips, jarring. A few months ago, I celebrated my 15th college reunion at Stanford and stood out on the quad, drinking a whiskey as pink sun dipped below the horizon. When old friends called out parting promises, we'll see you at the 25th, it seemed rude to respond with, well, probably not. Everyone succumbs to finitude. I suspect I am not the only one who reaches this pluperfect state. Most ambitions are either achieved or abandoned. Either way, they belong to the past. The future, instead of the ladder toward the goals of life, flattens out into a perpetual present. Money, status, all vanities the preacher of Ecclesiastes described holds so little interest. A chasing after wind, indeed. Yet one thing cannot be robbed of her futurity. Our daughter, Katie. I hope I'll live long enough that she has some memory of me. Words have a longevity I do not. I thought I could leave her a series of letters, but what would they say? I don't know what this girl will be like when she's 15. I don't even know if she'll take to the nickname we've given her. There is perhaps only one thing to say to this infant, who is all future, overlapping briefly with me, whose life, barring the improbable, is all but past. That message is simple. When you come to one of the many moments in life where you must give an account of yourself, provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world, do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with a sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied in this time, right now, that is an enormous thing. Ooh, wonderful. Thank you. Um, what's, uh, what rings so true about that for you? Ah, well, Paul was writing that to his infant daughter, right? And you feel like it's, you're kind of eavesdropping on something so intimate, which is a father trying to remind his daughter in perpetuity that she is enough, that she will never worry that she is not enough because she brought him so much meaning before in his brief time on earth with her. Yeah. And I love that so much. And I think that's true for all of us. Um, we have all been that. We all are that. But so few of us, like, you know, get a New York Times bestseller dedicated to us in which <laughs> it's printed forever, you yeah. know. But I think, you know, even if you've had bad parents, right, like plenty of people aren't lucky enough to be loved like Katie was and is loved. But mm. I think almost all of us have been loved by someone in that way, even for a brief moment. Right. And that is enough. And frankly, we're enough even without being loved that way. But I think by writing that to his daughter in a public way, he mm. gave it to all of us, that you can wonder who thinks of you that way. Um, and that you don't have to be around a long time 
um, to have made a huge impact on someone. You know, I've lost both my parents. I lost my dad at a really young age and he did not write me a book. <laughs> he did many other things um, of which I write about, but I just felt like, oh, this was a, such a gift to me. And this yeah. is a gift to any of us who, who've ever lost someone that, that loved them profoundly. Yeah. I love the dedication to your dad in the new book written with the pen he gave you uh, posthumously at your graduation. It was, uh, it was a beautiful story. Thank um, you. Your book is called What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey from Lost to Love. How, in writing this book, did your understanding of love deepen? I'd say, actually, it was in living my life before writing the book that my mm. understanding of love deepened, and then the book allowed me to share a little bit of what I'd learned. Beautiful. Um, love for me is treacherous. <laughs> I hate love. <laughs> hate it. You know, when I was falling for my now husband, I would just, like, get so mad at him. You know, like, damn you. <laughs> For being someone I am falling for. Like, I hate this. Um, you know, I don't want to love anyone else. Like, loving someone means that they can die or that you can get mm. divorced or they can change their mind or that you annoy them or, you know, but it's just best case scenario, one of you dies. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> that is just a terrible idea. Right? Like, and that's the best case scenario. <laughs> I, I just hate it. I hate it. And, I, you know, I think any of us who've been marked by disappointment or loss, whether that's through death or illness mm. or divorce or any other thing, someone just seeming to, uh, at the beginning, to be someone that they're not, um, they turn out not to be, you know, there's a million ways to do that, to be disappointed by life um, and our affections for others. But, I just really didn't want to go there, um, yeah. you know, and yet like love is irrepressible. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't control it. Um, so, you know, I'd say my journey that I write about in the book is I was raised with this like deep and encompassing love that was at times unbearable and hard. Mm. Um, you know, my dad found out he was dying when I was three. Um, and he had about 14 years to prepare me for a time he wouldn't be around, but he never knew he was going to have 14 years. So we would get like six weeks, one year, six months, eight months. Um, and so we we lived with this very acute sense of mortality sitting at the mm -hmm. dinner table. And that that was amazing. That shot me like a cannonball into life. I take nothing for granted. Also, it comes with a deep and abiding anxiety that everyone you love is just a hair's breadth away. Um, mm -hmm from leaving and I carried that into my adulthood and you know I I did get married in the end of my 20s it ended in divorce um, and then I spent oh god better, better part of 10 years doing what my brother refers to as my YMCA dating period <laughs> <laughs> very basically just like worked my way through the village people nice. um <laughs> i dated like an anthropologist or someone at a dim sum brunch you know the like more interesting and new to me flavor the more i was gonna go on a date with that flavor <laughs> um and it was fun and it was fascinating and it was also exhausting yeah. um and i think i was dating as a kind of rebellion against mortality 
Um, and there's nothing wrong with that if that's what makes you happy. But it wasn't making me happy in the end. It was just making me exhausted um, yeah. and unable to keep everybody straight. And I just felt vaguely unsatisfied. And so I really had to go on something of a journey that was both literal and metaphorical to figure out how to be open to loving someone else, knowing what I know, which is that you can lose people for no good reason at all. And you often do. Um, and it's hard once you've seen that, you know, to make yourself open to it again. You you kind of yeah. like, oh, you dumbass. Why are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> you know, um, so that that's my lived experience. Yeah. Um, so I, I so, had gone on that journey. I'm still on that journey. Yeah. It still wakes me up at night. It's not something that goes away. <laughs> I've, I've just learned to live with it like an unwelcome house guest. I'm curious to know whether in that softening, was it something that you had to learn or was it something that you had to unlearn? Yeah, both. I had to unlearn a sort of vicious internal voice that I used to speak to myself. Um, and I had to learn, I don't know, I guess to like leave 3% up to chance. It's just, yeah. Like there's 97% odds I'm going to die anytime, right? Or that you will. Right. But there's also this tiny chance that maybe I'll get old or that you will, but that we might get old together. Yeah. Um, and I, that is a practice. I mean, <laughs> I'm terrible at it. And it's hard for my brother too. And, you know, I have many friends who uh, have loved people with, with, with chronic illness or have it themselves, have it live without themselves. And, you know, it is a practice um, and it's hard and I'm not good at it. You know, yeah. I, um, but I try just to remind myself that like maybe, maybe even though you think the end of the story is written, it actually hasn't yeah. been. Um, and let life surprise you. Maybe it'll surprise you in a good way. You know, um, in the, in your new book, um, the second part starts with a, a quote by Nick Cave. So already I love this book because, you know, Nick Cave writes, I mean, I, I, I like some of his music, but I don't love his music. But his newsletter, The Red Hand Files, is just this extraordinary uh, chronicling of love and life and rediscovery of vulnerability and compassion. It's just a, he writes so beautifully. It's like, I want to be Nick Cave when I grow up. Um, you know, I'll skip the heroine, and as, as has he, but you know, I'm like, he's so, he writes so beautifully. And he talks about um, understanding limitations. Um, what's your relationship with your own limitations? How do you dance with those? Uh, well, I'd say for a long time, I just stuffed them into a box and refused to admit <laughs> they existed. So I'm not sure I've danced with them yet, but I do let them out of the cage every once in a while. Right. For light and air and some water. Yeah. You know, my favorite drug of choice is excellence. Mm. Um, I love that. Know, That's a great phrase. <laughs> I, for so long, you know, was absolutely convinced that I could excel my way out of suffering. Mm. And if I only was better things would hurt less. Um, that was an accidental lesson I really wish I hadn't learned from yeah. my father. Yeah. Um, you know, who really believed that vulnerability 
was a sign of weakness um right and desperately didn't want to see as a pa- be seen as a patient um and i think that's another reason that when breath becomes air resonates with me because mm. i think paul kalanithi was able to hold both things in a way that my dad really had a hard time doing yeah. um and you know i used achievement as a way to hold off any sort of existential dread and i really believe that you know for way too many years i acted as you know so much i like how do i say this i am really proud of the things that i was able to do um you know but a phd from mit a new york times bestseller those things doing the ted talks um you know, those the professorship at the Stanford School of Medicine, you know, with every new shiny trophy, I expected to feel better, <laughs> um, even though I knew well, better. Right. Yeah. Um, and rather than stopping and saying, huh, like, I have just carried my suitcase of anxieties and questions into this new room with ever yeah. shinier prizes. Instead, I would get into that room. I would be given the shiny thing. I would look around and be like, ugh. I'm still here, you know? Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. Damn it. I'm still waking up at 3 a.m., you know? Yeah. Um, and I think eventually I just sort of hit a wall. I got, I got so tired. Yeah. And I just felt like, oh, there must be a better way, you know? Yeah. Have I have I given up, you know, hustling? Oh, hell no. I will, never, I will hustle until I die. I will die with 50 unfinished projects, a million applications. Oh, maybe, you know, that's just yeah. my personality. Um. But I think you can hustle and you can want to do well and you can know that it's not a spiritual self. Um, yeah. And I confused those things for so long. And I really think that if only I was good enough or if I had been good enough, the pain of loss would hit differently. It wouldn't hurt as much. Yeah. Um, and that is just so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but no one could have told me, you know, I think like Nick K, right? Like some of us like, we, we just got to touch the fire and get burned and then realize, yeah. you know, like uh, maybe without all the heroin, he wouldn't have gotten all the wisdom. <laughs> exactly. Right? Like, That's true. Like, no, yes, but, uh, I've got a quote on my, my writing desk over there um, from Rilke, um, from his poem called The Man Watching. And there's a line in it which I pulled out and as a reminder, which is, and I'll get this slightly wrong, but it's... Um, it, it finishes, it broadly saying, it's like my, his, his quest is not to win more, but, and this is the line, to be deeply defeated by ever greater things. Oh, and God. I love that as a, as a attempt to remind me to stop going for the things where I get to win the trophy, but start going for the things where it's, 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 it's all about the angel wrestling with you. And the, the theme of the poem is, you know, the angel doesn't wrestle with everybody. The angel only wrestles with people who are doing the, the stuff that is big enough and hard enough that you, it makes a difference and you're going to fail at it. You know, to wrestle and lose to the angel, because you always lose when you wrestle an angel, is a success, is to be defeated by ever greater things. So when you talk about that, I, that rings true for me as well. Oh my God, what's the name of that poem again? It's called The Man Watching by Rilke. All right, that's going over my writing desk. <laughs> it's, it's and maybe wonderful. like tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> next, so, I don't know. So we're yeah, next, yeah, exactly. Get a bit gangster. Yeah. Medical profession. With Roka. That's my kind of gangster. Exactly. That's how I roll.
Um, so Laura, with this awareness that you know the the external validation and the trophies don't actually grant happiness, how do you hold success for you now? What does that mean? Great question. I feel like we began this conversation with you telling me my deep anxiety about <laughs> nobody reading this book, right? I mean, exactly. it, it doesn't go away. If only it would go away. I mean, uh, I, I wish I had a meditation practice, right? I mean, I think this is one of those things of like, oh, you label your thought, you think about a thought like a cloud, it's <laughs> wave, right? Like, There's no, something no. in the tone of your voice that tells me that you're not totally buying into that. <laughs> because my anxieties are not clouds they're like permanently affixed to the ceiling of my mind um and they're more like snoopy clouds that just follow me everywhere and rain on that's me. funny yeah. you know like could i get rid of that through practice and self-awareness sure you know it's not like i'm anti the therapeutic process like i reflectively write i have done all this work i have you've been yeah. in therapy you know i it's not that i don't want to live a different way but i also feel like um, if you want to make things, if you want to wrestle with angels, yeah, uh, some element of other people being involved is often part of that. Yeah, and the the need to not disappoint others um, is huge. Is huge, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's part of humanity. You know, right? Um, we are a social species, and so we are wired for a certain level of anxiety around disappointing self and others because we're worried about, you know, being left uh, on the side of the trail yeah. while everyone else moves on. So I think part of it is just recognizing that that is an intrinsic thing. Um, that's part of the same desire that we have to connect and be loved and adored by other people and to love and adore them. So, yeah. you know, I know that's where it's coming from. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, I am just trying to set small goals for myself. Yeah. And I had a mantra while writing this book um, that really helped me, which made it less about me um, and much more like, you know, the ancient Greeks thought about the muse, which is like, please let me share the wisdom that I have been given with the people. You know? Right. Uh, that's not exactly it, but it's close. Yeah. And I think it makes it externalized in a way. And I also think wisdom is the same thing that belongs to all of us. Yep. And most good books are sharing a universal truth that has been shared for centuries and millennia. Yeah. Um, we just keep repackaging it in new ways sure. to reach people, yeah. right? New wine in old bottles. Yes. Old wine always. in new bottles. Actually, the right, right way of putting it. Yeah. I feel the same about my work. I'm like, there's nothing here that's really radically new it's old wine but new bottles hopefully you like the bottle <laughs> exactly because every new generation of people will only drink out of certain bottles so yeah, that's right i it's not that i think that it means our work is any less mm. uh, but i think that every new generation of people um needs the messages delivered in a way that they can hear them yeah um and to make your messages audible you have to figure out you know what the medium is um, and, and what's going to work for people, what's, what's going to set them alight, what's going to make them pause, yeah. and, you know, something that worked in like 80 BC is not going to work in 2023 and that's okay. <laughs> Even if the same yeah. wisdom is fundamental, um, and that's it hasn't right. changed. I think it there, it's not a problem. Uh, you know, cliches are cliche for a reason. Usually they are true. Mm -hmm. um, usually they hold a kernel of wisdom and yeah. the job isn't to reinvent the wisdom. The job is to deliver it in a way that people can integrate into their lives. 
Yeah. And so when I think about it that way, it takes off some of the pressure, which is just like, ah, I'm just the latest in a long line of people yeah. that are trying to get people to pay attention to the fact that life is short and they should do with it what feels right to them and what will make their time here as meaningful as possible. That's really it. You know. Um, you know, before we hit record, you know, we're having a quick chat about book launches because yours is coming up in a month and mine's coming up in three or four months time, both lamenting the experience of book launches because it's a lot of running around like a headless chicken, um, with about as much effect, um, as that as well. Um, well, I'll tell you something that's just occurred to me that might be helpful. I'm going to ask you a question about it. So with my new book, which is called How to Work with Almost Anyone, rather than framing the book launch as how many books can I sell, we've framed it as our goal is to improve 10 million working relationships. So it's, it's a mission-driven thing rather than a book-selling thing. And... I'm totally going to put you on the spot here, but if there was a mission for what looks like bravery, what's your crappy first draft of articulating that? What comes to mind? You are so smart. This is changing my life right now. Um, I have to think of words for it, but I would say it's, oh my goodness, a thousand people, though I feel like I should dream big, to change 10 million, I'll borrow from you. Um, relationships between people and the ones that they love that are still here. Nice. Um, you know, I want just a couple people to pick this up, read this story, and either forgive themselves a bit, um, to recognize that the shame and guilt that they have over the loss of someone else isn't indicative of something they've done wrong but is actually the feeling of grief itself and love itself it's the feeling of uh that we choose to feel because loss and believing that there was no reason for it is too painful so instead yeah. we blame ourselves and i would love just a few people to see me walk that trail um and be able to forgive themselves a bit of suffering in the same way and then on the other side of the coin if they have their person still here or a person still here that they ask a question they're too scared to ask, that they set aside a meaningful hour, um, mm. that they don't believe the worst possible story about themselves without confirmation. Um, really, that I inspire a little bit of human connection, either, and self-forgiveness um, in anyone who is living with somebody else who is on their way out. Yeah. Um, I really want that. So... Um, I that. I, I'll try to think of a better way to do that. I, I will tell you, I'm um, book tour for me, you know, as you know, book tours have sort of changed and, you know, who knows if they're useful and, you know, COVID, there was, that was already happening, but I think COVID really did it in. Yeah. But what I want to do um, is go to the major cancer centers around the United States and any other country that will have me and do some reflective writing workshops for patients and caregivers. Fantastic. Uh, because that's something that is just so fun, so meaningful. Yeah. I have, w I wished I had had myself and I've been doing it for healthcare professionals now since March of 2020. Um, but I, I have not done any for patients and caregivers. And I think especially caregivers are often left out, yeah. um, of many of these kinds of interventions of support. And so 
you know, I will be doing this um, in places where the people are who are wrestling with brand that new sounds, diagnoses. That sounds like a fine book tour to me. I hope so. Um, <laughs> if you if you know any uh, clinics, hospitals, uh, care centers um, that you think would be interested in having me, let me know. I will. But I love that idea, Michael. That like you're changing relationships. The goal is not copy sold. I, you know, they're yeah. not unrelated. Um, Never related, but one's, such a one's better much more interesting goal. to focus on. Yeah, yeah. Because like your number is somewhere in between a couple and ten million. So the two <laughs> numbers you named, I'm like, it's probably more than two. It doesn't have to be as many as ten million. Maybe there's some other number in the middle that feels no. I'd be happy with big, that, frankly. <laughs> but I felt like I should set the bar high. You know, yeah. what was I telling you? Like, I, the shiny prize desire does not go away. Yeah, exactly. Hey, Laura, let me ask you a, a final question. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in our conversation? I am so grateful for you. Oh, thank you. You believed in me in a time I didn't believe in me. Um, Really. And I remember, you know, your coaching has been so fundamental to my life. And I remember you looking at me. I was like having trouble paying my bills. And I was dreaming of being a professor. Um, I had not lined up for professorship at all. My last book had come out. It had done well, but not financially. It had not translated into financial success. I really didn't know what was next. Um, and I'm someone who doesn't do well outside of a structure. And you believed in me and you told me I could do it. And you asked me how much money I wanted to earn in a year. And I said what to me at the time felt like a preposterous sum because I was earning like $30,000 a year, which to yeah. all those people out there who are doing that, no shade on you. Um, I was just living in a very expensive American city. It was really hard. Um, and I set a preposterous number and you just looked at me and you're like, well, of course you can do that. No. <laughs> like It just didn't seem strange to you. And I remember <laughs> that feeling, you know, like there's nothing like the gift of believing in someone when they don't believe in themselves and calmly seeing a future for them that, that they can't trust yet. And you kind of hold the torch for somebody until they can believe it too. And you absolutely did that for me. And I will be grateful my entire life, Michael. I really will be. I And I try to now do that for other people because I know what that's like. Um, and I, that had just never been modeled for me before. I, I'd experienced others' expectation. But I think others' calm belief in you is a totally different thing. Thank you. That's amazing to hear. I really appreciate that. It's just a thousand times true. I, I uh, you know, I, you don't need an endorsement for me, but just if, uh, if you ever need a humanity blurb, I'm here for you. Oh, thank you. Part of our conversation was about a passion fruit vine that Laurel was looking at through the window. I mean, first, let's just celebrate how brilliant a fruit passion fruit is. That black wizened case that when you cut it open reveals this orange and purple massive sweet and citrus and crunch and smooth it is truly one of my favorite favorite fruits but back to the vine <laughs> laurel was saying that she'd planted it three years earlier and this was the first season in which it had blossomed it takes time for things to come to fruition and in fact when you plant a seed you're not even sure if something will blossom and fruit. You're taking, this is one of my favorite phrases, you're taking your best guess. When Laurel was introducing When Breath Becomes Air, 
she said, this is really a call. This is how she, the book hit her, a call that the mortality clock is ticking. You've got to do the thing you're scared of. And that's not just the scary thing in the moment, you know, jumping off a metaphorical or maybe even literal cliff. It's about placing a bet on something that you might not know how it will play out in the future. It means understanding that risk and that uncertainty and that ambiguity and going for it regardless. It means being willing to plant a seed. Thank you for listening. I've got a couple of interviews for you to discover or perhaps rediscover. Um, Catherine Mannix, The Art of a Tender Conversation. Catherine is the um, doctor that brought um, a behavioral cognitive behavioral therapy to palliative care in the UK. Brilliant woman, lovely woman, love that conversation. And Andre Schneier Magnusson, uh, that interview is called Not Wasting Time. He is um, Iceland's most famous writer, most famous contemporary writer. Um, and that was a wonderful and unexpectedly delightful conversation, I would say. For more of Laurel, you can go to her website, Laurel Braitman. Um, I'll spell it for you. L-A-U-R-E-L-B-R-A-I-T-M-A-N. You can get the book there, but also you can join a workshop every other Saturday where and write with Laurel. I use this structure all the time, not immediately with Laurel, but with other people, um, where we get together and we just hold space for each other to do work. In fact, I'm recording this voiceover whilst I'm doing that with the, uh, a group of people from the conspiracy, the membership site that we have at mbs.works. And we're all just working on our stuff. Uh, some are reading, some are writing thank you notes, some are writing and designing a course. I'm doing voiceovers. This is a random aside, but finding people to work with and hold space with is really powerful. And Laurel is doing that for you as well. You can find out more at laurelbrakeman.com. Thank you for listening. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you as an audience. It's a pleasure to know that you're enjoying these interviews. If you have a chance to love me up in some way, you know, rate the interview, give us some stars, pass an interview on that you particularly love to somebody. You know, we grow this reading community one person at a time. And if you can help with that at all, I'm certainly grateful. You're awesome. You're doing great.